Welcome to the Tokenomics DAO podcast, where we explore everything tokenomics related, ranging from deep dives on the tokenomics of the newest protocol to demystifying the nuance of building a successful token ecosystem. Our goal is to bring awareness to the importance of tokenomics and the crucial role it plays in defining the success of a protocol, helping make tokenomics relevant for everyone, builders and investors alike. I'm your host, Flo, joined by my co-hosts, Jason and or Lovis. Welcome to the podcast. On this podcast episode, we're trying something new. We recently hosted our first ever community talk. This is a new format we are experimenting with internally. Members of our Discord community that have studied the tokenomics of a project in detail can give a 30 or maybe 60 minute talk to our community. The first person to do this is Rush, and he presented on Ethereum as it transitions from proof of work to proof of stake. There are significant impacts to the tokenomics of Ethereum as it completes this transition, and Rush breaks that down for us very well. We thought the presentation was so good and Rush does a great job explaining some pretty complex concepts, so we decided to give his content more reach by publishing it to our readers and podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the author, please join the Tokenomics DAO Discord server, go to the Tokenomics Discussion channel, and use the at mention to talk to Rush, or send him a DM. His handle is R-U-S-H and the number zero. So rush zero. We hope you enjoy this presentation as much as we did when we listened to it live the other day. So I'll, I'll start with uh, the agenda today is going to be simple. It's going to be ETH basics. We'll start with some basics just because I want to make sure uh, we are on the same page and then talk about where we are today, which is ETH 1.5 actually. Uh, and then we move to ETH 2.0 and its impact on tokenomics. Uh, then we'll discuss a few risks of this entire process and uh, what do they really mean. And uh, in terms of risk, what I'm going to discuss is probably what are the most popular kind of statements being tossed around in this uh, industry right now. What do they mean uh, for tokenomics? And then lastly, we talk a little bit about price impact. I don't like to talk a lot about price impact. So we'll, we'll talk more or less in, in, uh, in terms of uh, demand and supply over there. Um, one thing to keep in mind as we go through this process is uh, in today's discussion, uh, we'll focus more on demand and supply. Uh, the reason being, no matter what tells you, at least my learnings tell me that pretty much all activity or all tokenomics is driven by demand and supply only, uh, pretty much. And that's dictating price, that's dictating utility, there's there's a lot of other, or, or vice versa. So uh, let's level set and get started on the basics first. So if you go to the next page, You've probably heard the top three terms being used a lot in the industry, which is data availability layer, consensus layer, and execution layer. And I just want to kind of uh, level set and explain to everybody uh, sort of what they really mean at a very high kind of level, because this will become important and it has a huge implication on the tokenomics. Uh, it's not just, this is what sort of is the key, the, the, what we're saying protocol changes that are driving demand and supply. These are the protocol level changes uh, that are driving that. So Ethereum basically has three layers. Think of it as just three broad layers. One is data availability, the other is consensus layer, and the third is the execution layer. Uh, and what is the data? And, and for that, let's try and understand what is data, uh, the most basic layer, which is the data availability layer. So if you think about Ethereum as a uh, what you've heard probably also being tossed around as a EVM or the ledger, uh, basically it's a uh, the ledger is in, 
a certain state right now and when you add a transaction to it it moves to a different state uh, and that that state is actually the data availability layer uh, transactions are cryptographically signed as we know uh, and essentially because of that ethereum can be viewed as a uh, essentially a, a transaction based state machine so and what do you need for these transactions is what we uh, you probably already know when you use metamask is something called gas uh, which is uh, simply a unit that measures the amount of computational effort uh, that goes behind this. So I'm glad we, so we clarified what the data availability layer is. If you go to the next page, you, you'll see, you've heard this term called uh, a lot probably, which is blocks. What are blocks really? Blocks are nothing but uh, tranches of these transactions put together uh, to change this data availability layer. So instead of having just one transaction at a time, you sort of batch them you put them in a block just to, that's the, that's the easiest way to think about it uh, and what this is is the consensus layer uh, where the blocks are uh, and this is what gives as you link these blocks together you get the blockchain essentially the the the, the namesake blockchain uh, now these blocks are essentially cryptographically derived and this is what prevents fraud this is what prevents uh, false transactions false entries uh, and keeps them in a specific order uh, because they are hashed, as you heard. And the subsequent hashes, if the hash changes, it changes the order, and that everybody notices in the blockchain, and that kind of uh, that that invalidates the transaction. So T1 must always come before T5, let's say, uh, and that is uh, essentially cryptographically controlled. So who does this? So if you go on the next page, uh, we'll see. Uh, who is actually doing? Uh, why, why would? How would you achieve consensus? I think that that's the that's the main question. Um, so if you switch to the next page, uh, Vinny. Hello, Vinny. Um, there we go yeah thanks so uh basically if we, if we why why would anybody actually have these uh why would anybody do this and this is where miners come in and what miners are basically doing is they are actually uh batching these transactions uh and taking the effort to actually validate them uh and verif verify them put them in a particular order and they achieve this consensus by basically what uh, different an algorithm called the proof of work uh, and this requires a real cost and this will become very important uh, for our talk so as we discussed there's a data availability layer and there's a consensus layer and this is where the proof of work is happening to actually uh, uh, which miners kind of uh, 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 put energy into to solving and uh, they incur real cost in terms of computational costs uh, in fiat which is electricity and equipment that they use to uh, do this process uh, if you go to the next page please you'll see that uh, this can, uh, uh, we don't see any of this process. Uh, all we see is actually uh, just gas fees. Uh, and that is the execution layer. So all you see is party A giving party B uh, some ETH. That's all you see. So you see 1.0042 ETH going to uh, from A to B. And what happens is that B receives one ETH uh, and in between 0 0.04 to uh, 0042 ETH uh, goes to the miners uh, based on the gas limit. Uh, 
I've put the calculation down there. We don't need to discuss the calculation in detail or anything. Uh, but essentially what it is, is that uh, uh, A is giving B uh, some ETH with a gas limit. And that gas limit is basically uh, uh, essentially, I mean, uh, 20, 21,000 units. Gas price is about uh, 200 GUE. Uh, you probably heard of these terms. And then uh, the limit times the gas price per unit uh, will give you the total number of ETH, which is the fees kind of that are going to the miners. Uh, and uh, this would be deducted from A's account and go to B. This is all UC, and this is the execution layer. Uh, so this covers the kind of basics of what Ethereum is and sort of where we are, uh, what are the sort of core three layers that are in operation. Uh, I'll, I'll cover one last page before we uh, to sort of take a small pause to discuss any uh, specific uh, question. So if you go to the next page quickly, uh, what I want to discuss here is that, well, what is, where does this 0 0.0042 ETH go? Uh, how does it go to the miners? Is there a specific proportion to it? And uh, uh, this is where you have to kind of understand that it, it is actually uh, uh, the previous place, uh, previous page, please. Yeah, uh, this is actually important because uh, there's two parts to this fees uh, when a transaction is made from one to the other. It's basically fees paid by individuals, and then there is a protocol level issuance as well. So, as I said, miners have to work towards doing something, uh, towards doing this computation, and nobody works for free. There's no free meal. So, why would they do that? Well, first is that you, as an individual, just the way you pay Visa or MasterCard a 2% fee, I mean, not you, but the merchant pays it, uh, you kind of tip the miner. Uh, and that's optional, that's fully optional. So, the fees, this fee directly goes to the miner. Uh, but Think about it from the circulating supply point of view of that particular uh, currency, in this case, Ethereum. Uh, it's basically not an inflationary supply. You had that, so it was already in the circulating supply. And now it's going from one individual to another individual uh, in that ecosystem. So it still is has net no impact on the circulating supply and is a neutral uh, kind of uh, 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 neutral activity. All it's doing is incentivizing uh, the miner to kind of push your block faster. So as you've noticed, you, you you probably heard that, you know, when the gas prices, when the network is uh, uh, very busy, you should increase your gas limits. And that's what you're doing. You're basically increasing these optional tips so that the transaction can go faster because the miners are incentivized to pick up your uh, transaction. Uh, now, in terms of the other part, which is like the network itself uh, needs to, needs to continue uh, to incentivize the miners to do this. Uh, in a safe and secure manner. And so what they do is they basically give a protocol level reward. So in case of Ethereum, it's, it's different for each blockchain. In case of Bitcoin, it's different. But in case of Ethereum, as of right now, as of right now, there's a block subsidy of two ETH that is given, uh, which dilutes the existing holders of Ethereum. So whenever a block is issued, two ETH are issued as well. And these are brand new, they didn't exist earlier and they come into the circulating supply, into the market. And this dilutes the existing holders of Ethereum. So this increases the total number of ETH tokens outstanding. Uh, and uh, it's paid at the protocol level. So this is an inflationary uh, tax on ETH. Now, and this is what causes when people say it's an uncapped token, Ethereum is going to inflate away completely. Well, so this is where the inflation piece is coming from. This also does a second similar second problem, introduces a second problem, which is it makes fees for transaction very unreliable. Because what happens is, as I said earlier, 
when they, when things are too busy, you just add a lot of tips. And so the transactions keep getting more and more expensive. The protocol level uh, fees remains the same, but the transaction keeps getting more and more expensive. Uh, and hence, uh, you basically get a network that becomes almost unusable because gas fees are so high. So uh, that's happening because of the top part where fees paid by individuals for optional tips are increasing further and further, or miners just won't pick up your block, right? So that's that's uh, that's the kind of basics that covers everything so far in terms of mining, uh, in terms of ETH issuance, right? And this is the supply side of the network, right? So this is uh, sort of purely talking about how ETH supply inflates. And this is all happening at the consensus layer because the consensus layer is incentivizing miners uh, to do this. So that's the point of uh, issuing ETH. Before I go to the next slide, I want to take a small pause to clear any questions you have before I go into the demand supply side. So if any, there's any questions, please uh, speak up right now. Okay, so it, it seems that there's not uh, too many questions here, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll continue for now. So, uh, what that does to the state of Ethereum is that it creates an inflationary asset, as we said earlier, where you know there's more and more ETH being issued as more and more transactions come through, and people need to be incentivized to kind of keep mining it. There is also a net positive sell pressure. I'll take a pause here and I'll, I'll, I want to very clearly specify this, that what, why does this sell pressure exist? So let's understand what is the blockchain really selling? So just think about this. If Apple sells iPhones, Facebook sells eyeballs, blockchains sell block space. That's what makes block space valuable. People want to use, transact on Ethereum, hence, they are demanding, they are, they are, put, they are basically in, uh, uh, essentially demanding more block space. And as you demand more block space, gas prices skyrocket as competition for block space increases in times of high utilization, right? So what Ethereum basically sells as a product at its core is block space. And that's something to really uh, understand quite, uh, quite well. Uh, when you look, uh, analyze different uh, uh, parameters across different coins, Bitcoin's kind of doing doing the same thing. It's selling its own block space, and so is Solana and others, right? But there's different mechanisms through which they sell it, uh, and there's there's different incentivization incentivization on top of it as well. Uh, I, I can probably uh, uh, open the floor, and maybe if somebody wants to answer, we'll do L2 sell block space like Polygon or uh, uh, something like uh, uh, Arbitrum. Or anything like that do they sell block space uh, if you guys want to take a gander i mean go ahead and put it in the channel or answer i can respond back to that later on uh, uh, when we uh, uh, when we when we're done so what it's what the blockchain sells is block space eth is selling eth blocks and what is it buying though what is the, what what is the blockchain buying well the blockchain is buying security for the network by issuing more eth so to secure this block space to make sure that it is executed properly, it is transacted properly, there's no double counting, and uh, miners are actually working well, uh, they have to securitize the network. And so what they're buying is security by giving people ETH. Ethereum pays for this by issuing ETH as rewards for the network. So this is the proof of network, uh, proof of work mining reward, is essentially buying security. And there are some major issues here, because what this leads to is, 
as block space, block space demand rises, so does ETH issuance. So it makes it very inflationary. Uh, and also miners are actually putting in real electricity and work into uh, real, real costs, incurring real costs in securitizing this. And this cost needs to be paid. And because of that, what they end up doing is constantly keep selling the ETH that they're earning as a reward or some portion of that ETH to pay for those bills. So this creates an immediate short-term pressure on ETH uh, to sell. And the sell pressure from miners uh, is basically unending. I mean, what we've seen so far is it's constantly increasing, actually. Uh, now, there's two parts to this, the inflationary part and the net positive sell pressure part. A, is an inflationary token bad? That's not necessary. I mean, if you think about it, the US dollar is actually inflationary. And it should, it, it, why wouldn't it be? Because it's the most utilized currency. Uh, in fact, it, the supply of a currency that, in, that is being utilized more and more uh, productively, you would expect it to increase. So it's just like any other asset, increasing supply in response to high demand leads to further increasing utilization, right? Uh, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be bad under certain situations, but we can take that in a different discussion. But, uh, and then the second part of this is the net positive sell pressure. And what this creates is you're basically creating a asset that is a structurally supply oriented asset. It, it has a structural supply flow. It's structurally, it's always going to inflate. It's always going to create a sell pressure. It's always going to uh, be adding more uh, ETH into the system than is actually being utilized at that point. That's a very important point. Most people don't grasp it and it, it might be hard on this talk as well, but we can go into it, uh, details of it later on. And as a result, what that does is uh, you have a net inflationary asset, which is uh, net positive. Uh, so inflationary asset with net positive sell pressure. I know this is very dense information. We've covered a lot and I've, I, I tend to talk a little fast as well. So I, I just wanna pause here uh, and take some time to really answer any questions. I know, I know Winnie had a few questions earlier, so. Uh, if, if there's anything, uh, uh, pl uh, please uh, please let me know before we jump to the next section. Can you, um, sorry, this is Lovis, can you explain again as how, as block space demand rises, so does the issuance of ETH. How is that correlated again? So, uh, block space demand rises uh, and the issuance of ETH. Okay, so as block space demand rises, right, what happens is more and more blocks come in. And as more and more blocks come in, uh, or more and more transactions come in, you have to create more and more blocks so that the, there's a backlog of transactions coming in that need to be kind of processed. And as they get processed, what happens is, as you issue each block, at the protocol level, you're going to issue two ETH as a reward to the miner, right? As we saw in the previous page. And so when more blocks are issued, more ETH is issued as a reward. And as that keeps continuing to increase more and more, you get more and more inflation in the system. But isn't the, the block height is always the same, no? Like the, they're, not, um, they're not adding new blocks. There's only so many blocks per time available. Or is that yeah, not yeah, correct? Yeah. 
Yes, yes, yes. No, so there's only there's only so there, there's only so many blocks uh, available per uh, uh, per time. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, and as uh, as these so, but or not all blocks are equal either, right? So not all blocks are fully filled with transaction. And so if you look at overall the ecosystem, right? Uh, what happens is that you're having uh, blocks being issued which are not fully utilized and yet have uh, are being issued, which lead and you add more ETH to the system to support now further transaction that causes a net inflation. I can explain this in detail. Uh, in yeah, okay. I see. Okay. Thank you. So uh, if we skip to the next page now. We'll talk now about where we are today. Okay. And this is after we've kind of already began our journey towards moving away from the consensus layer from the existing consensus layer, which is of proof of work, or moving to something called proof of stake. Uh, and we're already midway, not, not midway, I would say uh, uh, maybe a quarter or a third of the way there, uh, where we've started with EIP 1559 that's been implemented. Uh, and let's go to the next page and I'll show you sort of what I mean by that. So uh, if, if we switch to the next page, what you'll see is that uh, this London upgrade happened last August uh where remember earlier we had this block reward at the bottom which is a constant inflation in the on the proto at the protocol level uh yeah which is constantly inflation uh one more page up Vinny. page 11 please yeah, so at the at the uh, what we see is that every block has a base fee now uh, uh, which is a minimum unit of gas for inclusion in that block. So that's a new fee that they introduced. But it's not on top of what was existing. Uh, it's basically still going to be paid by individuals. And it's a, a part of that optional tips now. And tips are kind of calculated automatically. So what this does is that you have a, you broke up that optional tips into two pieces, let's say a base fee and an optional tip. And then at the protocol level, you have block rewards as well, which was continuing as is earlier. And what ha what's happening now is that these... Uh, uh, protocol level fees are still going to miners so that's still a constant inflationary pressure uh fees paid by individuals now uh those are going to be split up into two pieces optional tips still go to miners but again as we said earlier it's neutral it's not going to add any uh new supply into the market so it's 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 net uh neutral and the base fee now is actually burned so you probably heard this uh that there's a eip 1559 burns uh tokens so this part of these tips now is actually burned. And when we say burn, what it basically means is it's taken out of circulation. So the way to think about burning is uh, you send these tokens to a wallet address whose keys are not owned by anybody. So it's as good as uh, losing your uh, keys uh, for, for your uh, uh, wallet. And this is net deflationary because you're taking something totally out of uh, uh, circulating supply uh, forever. Now, miners who are going to still sell rewards to pay for proof of work costs here. So that all of that still exists. Uh, but it's just that the amount of ETH coming into the system has decreased slightly. So what is that impact? Now, we've been running this experiment for close to nine months at this point of time. And on the next page, we'll see what is the impact of these base fees uh, on the total circulating supply of Ethereum. If we go to the next page, Vinny. What we're seeing right now is that as of today, uh, the current state of Ethereum, there's 4.9 million ETH or about 5 million ETH that are issued 
per year. Okay, this is an annual basis. Uh, the circulating supply of Ethereum in total is somewhere between 116 to 118 million uh, uh, ETH. And per year now, we're actually burning 2.6 million ETH. Earlier, we were not burning anything. And it is only issuance, which is around 4.5% or so of the total uh, network uh, value that is happening per year. But now the net effect of EIP 1 uh, E1559 is to actually uh, basically earn a third of the total ETH supply, uh, uh, meaning that the net increase in total supply is currently around 2.7% as opposed to 4.5%. And what has happened specifically in times of cer on certain days is that the burn ratio for that day, uh, calculated to the issuance ratio for that day, is actually net negative. So for those days, the entire network was essentially deflationary. And this is the power of EIP-1559. And why, would, why did we even need to do this? The reason for that was that, as you saw earlier, when I said that when in times of the, when the network was busy, people would just add more tips and put more transactions, or fast track that transaction. Well, now uh, it's kind of democratic because even if you add more tips, the burn ratio adjusts itself and the tips are kind of automatically calculated. So uh, it basically uh, smoothens out the curve. Uh, on the uh, optional tips and that's that makes that uh, gas fees a little more predictable so that is the main impact of eip 1559 that is why it was actually introduced uh, to begin with it had, didn't have much to do with the consensus layer but what we're seeing is very important here what you're seeing is a net deflationary pressure or a net burn so there's now you're actually taking something out of the uh, equation and because of that, it's having a clear impact on the supply and demand overall of the ecosystem. So we saw that kind of when uh, we, after August, we did see a pump and price in, uh, in, in this area can, can kind of vary around the upgrade because people sort of buy into it beforehand uh, or they wait for the upgrade to go through. Uh, it, it all depends. So we'll see, we'll see in the next slide why, uh, in the next couple of phases, why uh, the upcoming upgrades are going to be even more uh, kind of uh, jarring to the entire demand supply equation in ETH. If you could please move to the next page. So from now on, we're going to talk now purely about ETH 2.0 uh, and uh, sort of what is proof of stake and uh, what is this merge and what is the impact of it on the tokenomics. And we'll, we'll try to stay, to stay less technical and focus more on the uh, tokenomics uh, aspect of it. There's a lot of changes happening in this protocol because of uh, moving to proof of stake. I'll try to stick very specifically to demand supply uh, 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 levers uh, for, for, our, for our time. On the next page, uh, on page 14, please, you'll see that what, I, what is the merge and what does it do to issuance? So what the merge does is as we earlier had a consensus layer, which was basically focusing on proof of work, what we're now doing is basically moving the consensus to a new algorithm, which is proof of stake. And what is the main difference between proof of work and proof of stake? Well, proof of stake is basically when earlier uh, in proof of work, uh, nodes could validate it only if they had a uh, GPU miner or an ASIC miner and had like the kind of computational power to do it. In proof of stake, nodes that actually hold ETH already are allowed to basically validate a particular transaction. So that really changes dynamics for miners or let's call miners or stakers or people who are, let's just call them nodes that are validating these transactions. And what is that change? So 
In case of proof of work, what happens is you have a fixed cost element for the miner and a variable cost. So I'm, I'm just trying to analyze this based from a very uh, sort of clean, um, you know, uh, accounting principles. Like if, if there's a commodity, it has a cost of production. The cost can be split up into the capex, which is the fixed cost. So it's capital expenditures and then variable costs, which are operations uh, related costs. So the capex for this company, Ethereum, in proof of work was basically miners. You had to buy mining equipment, right? And those are expensive. Uh, and then the variable cost is actually electricity. So there's a lot of electricity that you have to put uh, into mining this. Uh, uh, one more thing I want to also add here is that this fixed cost or capex, capital expenditure, uh, is not constant because miners get outdated and every couple of years you actually have to buy a new miner as well uh, to just stay computationally relevant. Uh, however, as we move to proof of stake, now to set up a node, all you need is basically a laptop, uh, a decent laptop, I would say, uh, and a stack of 32 ETH to run your own node. Uh, this is to run your own node. That doesn't mean you still can't stake ETH through other solutions like Lido and uh, uh, Rocket Pool and whatnot. But you need 32 Ethereum in your hands and a, a computer, and that's all you really need as a fixed cost. Uh, so as of today, that cost is around $52,000. Uh, plus, or let's say add the computer cost, so let's say $55,000 or so to set up a node. Now, uh, what is the variable cost? The variable cost here is electricity. And in proof of work is very, very intensive, uh, energy intensive. So you actually have to do these meaningless computations to secure the network. But proof of stake, by actually uh, holding ETH into that node, you're, uh, and I don't want to get into the technicalities of why that is, but by holding this ETH, you're actually reducing the supply of, uh, they're reducing the require, electricity required to mine these uh, assets. Uh, by, uh, I would say, 99.9% .9 pretty much. So now, in proof of stake, the variable, and, and, and if you think about it from the staker's perspective or the miner's perspective, what they are more concerned about is the variable cost, not the fixed cost. They've already invested that. They'll make the return on it as the coin appreciates over a period of time. But the variable cost they have to pay on a monthly basis, which causes this sell pressure on the token. And in proof of stake, the operating costs to secure the network are practically negligible. So this has a huge impact on uh, essentially the uh, what I would say is the uh, uh, the supply the sell pressure uh, for this token. Uh, now, if you go to the next page, I'll I'll try and now show you how this actually works uh, on uh, uh, what it does to issuance, right? So earlier, what it was doing was we we knew that a lot of the fees went to miners, protocol level, and fees paid by individuals. Now there's no miners in the picture, there's stakers in the picture. And stakers at the protocol level, at the bottom of the page, get validated rewards. Uh, I'll go into variable inflationary later, a little later, but that's a very important point. Uh, in terms of the fees paid by individuals, uh, you basically split that up again into a base fee and an optional tips, just the way you used to. The only thing that changes is that miner gets it instead of a staker, and the miner is net neutral. This is again a net neutral inflation. Uh, and then uh, net neutrals uh, to the supply, and then the base fee is actually deflationary because you're gonna burn that again. So that still exists. EIB 1559 uh, 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 mediated deflation or burning is still going to happen even in uh, ETH 2.0. But 
At the protocol level, there's a major change that has happened, which is validated rewards are not now going to be inflationary. You valid stakers do earn, but this inflation is going to be variable. It's not going to be the same two ETH per block subsidy. You're going to have a variable inflation. And this is very important to note because uh, this variable inflation actually is tied to the amount of ETH that is staked on the network. So I'll come to that in a minute. Before I say that, I'll just say one thing. There's a huge difference between the incentives of the stakers and miners to sell as well. So earlier, as you know, stakers, miners were kind of almost forced to sell, are almost forced to sell right now because they have to pay for electricity costs. They have to pay for upkeep of the equipment. Uh, but in case of validators, uh, when you move to stakers, you kind of have very little electricity cost and stakers are not likely to create additional sell pressure. Uh, whatever earnings that they get as APY, basically they're just going to keep it for them to themselves and the additional sell pressure from new issuance is not going to be as drastic. So, or at least it's not necessary, let's put it that way. If we go to the next page, I'll go into details of what do we mean by variable inflationary. Uh, so Vinny, on the next page we can see that the variable staking rewards are basically based on how much ETH is basically staked or locked in the staking contract. And this is a very simple uh, sort of, uh, I mean, this is all public information. This is not like something uh, uh, I just created this table out of whatever is av data available on the uh, uh, ethereum.org website. But as validating Ethereum increases, as you can see, the max annual network issuance also changes and the max annual return for validated also uh, validators actually starts to decrease. So as you can imagine if more ETH is staked on the, on the network, then you have more validators and as a result, you have your APY kind of decreases in terms of returns uh, on the network. And where we are today right now is we have about 10 million uh, ETH staked already, which would theoretically lead to a max annual issuance of just half a million or $600,000 of 600,000 or so of Ethereum. If you remember recollecting proof of work, we are today issuing close to 2.7 million uh, ETH, even after the burn. So 4.9 ETH issued, and then there's a burn of 2.6. So you still have about some, some, some odd 3 million or so being coming into the supply. Uh, but now the max issuance is actually going to drop to less than half, uh, less than 600,000 uh, ETH. And this is a huge drop. So if you go, go on to the next page, on page 17, you can see that POS drastically reduces issuance. So earlier from 4.9 million, we're going to 0.5 million. Circulating supply, uh, let's say it's, it's going to stay the same. I'm, I'm not going to count uh, the variability within a year or so for it. And the burn, we're not changing anything on the burn side. The EIP 1559 is still going to operate as is. You're still going to keep burning uh, these tokens. And this is what's causing people to say that, hey, it could actually become deflationary here. There's going to be a 90% drop in issuance with a constant burn. And this may absolutely make it deflationary. This is the, probably the most important slide to take away really from all the complicated stuff we've discussed so far, because what, what I'm trying to tell you here is that the amount of ETH coming into the system is going to really reduce drastically. Uh, and the amount of ETH that is being bought in the system right now or is existing or is being utilized, if we expect it to behave as is right now, it's going to actually reduce the overall circulating supply of Ethereum. So I'll pause there. This is a quite important uh, 
concept we've discussed. Uh, happy to answer any questions or we can move to the next page as whenever Vinny feels comfortable. Um, and just a quick question. Um, are you going to cover the impact on gas fees from this? Yeah, so not today. I wouldn't co cover the specific impacts of gas fees. Uh, I'll just tell you one thing that uh, so gas fees, pricing, all of those are kind of tied. I'll, I'll talk about it briefly, but maybe if you want to have a deeper discussion on it, it'll, it'll have to be a separate lecture because uh, it can get quite complex. Uh, but in general, what will happen is as price of Ethereum trends up and as utilization trends up, uh, you get an increase in gas fees. ETH1559 typically smooths out the curve, but it doesn't lower the curve per se. So that's number one. Uh, oh, actually, okay, I see, I see lower, lower, so, sorry, 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 I, 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 Lovis, I, I get uh, where you're going with this question. Uh, I will cover that uh, very briefly, yes. So uh, sure. the, let's just move to the next page if there's no other questions. Sure. Okay, so, the risks are several. Uh, f first of all, is is the merge technically that merge is technically not feasible, right? Like people keep saying that. I mean, you probably heard a lot about this. Uh, I will say this is my personal opinion. At this point, I can say this is probably false, given the kind of uh, developments that are already happening in the network. Uh, we've already had the Robston uh, testnet, which is ready to merge uh, by June eighth. There's a lot of fud created on it yesterday. Uh, because it hit its TTD uh, early, but that really has no significance on the merge dynamics, really. So up till now, all the test nets have very smoothly uh, uh, sort of come together. So at least it looks pretty hopeful that uh, August seems like a very likely uh, time to kind of uh, merge. So technically, it is feasible. We've done it in the. We've done it already. It, it's been done in the uh, in the test nets already. The merge will be delayed as usual, maybe. There's a huge maybe here. Uh, we just, it's at the end of the day, it's computer code. Uh, it can, uh, something can come up and we just don't know. And if something comes up, uh, it's best to wait when you're actually transitioning an entire system, uh, which is worth a couple of billion dollars, uh, several hundreds of billions of dollars from one system to the other. Uh, a very nice um, analogy here would be, if you're driving a, a gasoline car, a petrol or gasoline car right now at 120 miles an hour and what you're trying to do is while you're trying driving at that speed you're trying to change its bat change its uh, uh, combustion from gasoline to batteries to ev uh, and you're you're doing that trans transition while this car is running at 120 miles per hour that's what you're trying to do so it could be delayed uh, low gas fees means no rewards for stakers that's absolutely false uh, first of all uh, gas fees, as uh, we, we pointed earlier, uh, let me make this a pop quiz, actually. So we're going to make a change in the consensus layer. We're not making any changes in the data availability layer, and we're not making any changes in the uh, execution layer. So would that have any impact on gas fees? Anybody? Um, I guess not, but I, I don't... I have to admit, I don't really understand why it doesn't. <laughs> okay, so 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 basically, ga gas fees. I mean, we haven't really done anything with the gas fees. So the gas fees are being in oh, incurred. Yeah. We haven't really touched that part of the whole consensus at all, right? We all we've done is only changed right. issuance, 
uh, uh, to move to proof of stake. But all of the gas fees are still being paid in the same manner. Uh, what I'm trying to tell you is that the network, it, it, the, the mechanism is still inefficient in several ways. You want to lower gas fees, and this happens because you want to securitize the network. So if you want to keep securitizing the network, you have to pay these rewards at the protocol level, uh, which ends up becoming a part of gas fees. And this is what's basically, uh, this securitization is essentially right now uh, not being tinkered with. All you're changing is just uh, the consensus layer. And that's not really going to change much on the gas fees at all. You're still going to have the same issues. When it gets clogged, you're going to have more tips going in. There's going to be a bigger burn that will have an impact on demand and supply, but that you're still paying those fees. They're just getting burned. Uh, so it, 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 it has a, it's positive for the network, but for the usage of, for demand and supply of the network, but for the usage of the network, uh, you're still going to face very high gas fees if uh, sometimes demand goes through the roof. So I can explain that in details uh, as well, but for the, as a short answer to your question, Lois, was no impact on gas fees with this upgrade. That'll happen maybe when Ethereum 2.0 is fully launched, which will be, I would say, anywhere in 2023 when dank sharding comes in. And dank sharding is a completely different topic that we, we can talk about uh, on a different time. Uh, so so that, that's something to keep in mind. And then L2s are going to cannibalize ETH. So what are we doing right now? We're basically using L2s like Polygon and uh, a loop ring and all to basically uh, uh, so reduce gas fees. L2s are going to cannibalize ETH. Well, that's false because you know what? L2s use ETH to actually securitize themselves. So they have to pay ETH these uh, security uh, uh, premiums for security at some point of time. So they, they reduce gas fees, uh, but they're still paying security premiums. And eventually what they do is they really drive transaction volume through the roof. And that actually, as you increase volume, you're still going to be collecting a lot of fees for the network. Uh, and a growing protocol should not be deflating. This is a big maybe. And this is more of a crypto economics uh, piece on demand and supply. Should a growing protocol really be deflating? So if, for example, gold was being increasingly accepted as store of value, let's say, uh, would decreasing the amount of gold uh, systematically over a period of time, what would be that impact uh, on the utilization? Especially when if it's just a store of value, maybe it doesn't matter. But what if it's not just a store of value? It's being used everywhere and it, it's required. Uh, so this is very, really a big maybe, and uh, it should be a, a a major topic of discussion really, which is not unfortunately. So this is something that uh, people should be talking about. Uh, let's go to the next page, please. So now we'll talk about sort of price impact and I'm, I'm, this is just uh, purely uh, speculative opinions. So uh, uh, what I have tried to do is create, give a very neutral view on uh, what's happening in the ecosystem. Uh, you guys can take it uh, sort of uh, create meaning out of it. Uh, and also there is a change in narrative happening, right? So the narrative around Ethereum is also evolving. Um, went to, just the way it has changed for Bitcoin. Uh, one thing in crypto industry in general to keep in mind is that narrative uh, tends to follow price. So basically price bumps uh, up for whatever reason, demand supply reasons, and then people create a narrative around it and uh, the ecosystem settles on that narrative. For example, for Bitcoin, started with a, a payment network and now it's kind of come to a store of value and now it's kind of going again towards a payment network. So it's kind of like a little bit of uh, a flux there. With Ethereum also, 
Uh, it started with a programmable, programmable money. And now we're coming to, well, is it store of value? Is it a yield bearing in internet bond? Is it pristine collateral? So, these, so this last part of this store of value, yield bearing internet bond and all, I won't discuss that. What I'll do is just lay out the facts in terms of demand and supply, and we can make conclusions or have an open discussion. Go to the next page, please. So basically, ETH has built so far today, what we, when we look at ETH, what it has done, Ethereum has done as it has built an organic supply and demand ratio that keeps the price at this level. So there's an influx of ETH coming in. There's, an, uh, there's a demand for ETH. And that has been built over a period of eight years since 2014's its launch, right? And the new ETH that enters circulation is, which is the supply, is absorbed daily. So, or as the price would start crashing, if people are not uh, taking uh, buying the ETH that is coming in, it would start crashing. Uh, and right now, if you look at the table in proof of work column, the issuance is uh, for this is uh, these are annual numbers. Uh, we're looking at twenty-seven to thirty-five million dollars worth of issuance uh, at, at roughly today's prices, and the demand uh, is about thirty million or so. So we somewhere need a net, we have a net pressure of five to eight million in terms of buys, okay? Uh, demand is actually closer to 25 million, so I should correct that, but you have somewhere around five to eight million dollars of buys, uh, which need to happen. Uh, so that's new money that needs to come into the system to keep the price where it is. And it has done pretty well. It has the, I mean, if you look at it where ETH was a year ago to where it is, uh, or a couple of years ago to where it is right now, uh, it, it's done pretty well. And when proof of stake happens, what happens is that issuance drops drastically, as we said. It's going to be somewhere between zero to five million dollars at max at today's prices. And then the demand is actually going to be still the same because if we're not saying, we're not assuming any utilization is going to change or it's going to disappear or anything like that, people are still, the assumption is that that organic demand is still going to stay. So now it creates a net sell pressure. This is a very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting dynamic where uh, people would actually need to issue more or sell more ETH to satisfy this demand to keep the price where it is today. If they fail to sell, the price would start rising, assuming the demand stays. One more thing I want to keep in mind is a lot of people have been saying, well, stake ETH is going to be released as soon as ETH 2.0 comes out. But that's not true, actually. Once the merge happens in August sometime, let's say, uh, stake ETH is actually going to be locked for six months post-merge, six to 12 months, up until the Shanghai fork. Uh, which is another computational upgrade which will happen in the future at some point of time and so negligible amounts of eth will actually enter the supply for six months post merge to keep this in mind in terms of demand and supply negligible eth is entering the system now the amount of demand and utilization if we assume remains the same what would be its impact overall on pricing and there's several models in which you can consider this. I'm going to present one case. Uh, so there's DCF models and all of those. But let's go to the next page and I'll quickly talk about one part of this, okay? Which is we see what happens with Bitcoin. So whenever there's a triple halving, uh, well, whenever there's a halving, Bitcoin halving, which happens every four years in a cyclical fashion, fashion we know that very well, we actually get a shock in the supply less Bitcoin is issued. And we see a very clear impact on, on price and demand for Bitcoin. As demand stays roughly the same, you see Bitcoin price skyrocket. So these are structural supply shocks at the protocol level. 
And when structural supply shocks happen in the crypto industry, what we have seen is that they catalyze large moves. So this is one thing to consider that proof of stake transition or the merge is essentially a structural supply shock to the system. And it's a pretty big shock, 90%. Now, what this is creating is probably one of the largest supply shocks in the history of crypto at such a large scale. Uh, nothing like this has really been done. So it is, that's why people say, well, it's a really risky investment. I mean, yeah, that is, that, this is the risk you're running. This is a large supply shock coming into the system. Uh, nobody's done this experiment. Nobody can really tell how it's going to trend. Uh, but if you go by the halving, Bitcoin halving, what you're basically having is an impact of a triple halving. You're, you're reducing the supply that much in just a flick of a switch. One, one day you hit that, you hit that block, um, the TTD, and in, it'll just switch over. And most likely, one thing to keep in mind is we will probably never see another such setup in this industry again either. So this is a very unique use case that has been built up because the organic demand for ETH was built up through proof of work over a long period of time, over eight years. And there is utilization behind it in DeFi, NFT, and all of these applications. And now you're just switching the demand supply underneath it, which is a setup that's probably not going to occur in the industry. I mean, the only times we've seen massive supply shocks, we recently saw that in the Terra ecosystem, where you had a massive supply of Luna come in and you saw that the chain collapsed completely. In this case, it's opposite. We're going to actually reduce the amount of supply. And so this opens up a lot of questions for us as well uh, and how to interpret pricing. But what I want to say is move the conversation further uh, towards other areas, which is, could ETH become a deflationary asset? Is that good, really? That's an important philosophical question, really, from a, a crypto monetary perspective. And ETH have a more stable pricing after the merge. And when will it become stable? Because you want it to be a stable asset. So does this make it more stable? Um, does this make ETH a pristine collateral? Uh, and we can, and that's a very, that's the sort of, sort of ultrasound money narrative or sound money. Uh, does it really make it sound money? Uh, and then as we earlier said that, you know, there's a structural supply uh, in Bitcoin and in, in Ethereum, which is why it's a structural supply based asset. Does this now make ETH a structural, structural demand driven asset? Because that can have a huge impact on how it is actually just being uh, viewed by, uh, by uh, the uh, people who are buying it and staking it as well. Because if it's structural demand asset, you want to actually uh, keep it or hold it more and more. Anyway. I'll pause there. Uh, we can go to the next page if you want. But uh, what I'll do is I've, I've left my some of my um, uh, contact info uh, in terms of my email and uh, LinkedIn and uh, uh, Twitter on the next page. And uh, you guys can reach out to me. I'm happy to answer questions, get into discussions. And right now, I'd like to open the floor for the next few minutes to uh, just have an open conversation with everybody. Hi there. Yeah, I have a question. Um, well, first of all, uh, it was a, a really good presentation. Thanks for the uh, the effort and the work that you put in. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask sort of like, uh, I have a, I guess, a minor concern with, so obviously transitioning to a proof of stake system, um, the, the, the fact that Ethereum obviously has many use cases outside of uh, staking, doesn't that provide some sort of a uh, security risk in that? Obviously, more use cases, like you mentioned before, DeFi, Ethereum, um, 
NFTs and whatnot, obviously that provides uh, more Ethereum on the market, meaning that it is possible to obviously uh, possibly buy a large amount of supply. Yeah, so so there's a lot of value locked in DeFi, if that's what you mean, right? Like, so there's like forty uh, some forty million uh, 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 amount ETH that are like transacted just in DeFi applications uh, on a daily basis. So uh, yes, there's a lot of value already locked locked over there. But the transition to proof of so, as I said again, we are not making any changes at the execution layer. So for the the securitization of the network comes at the uh, consensus and data availability layer between the two and we're since we're not making any changes to the execution layer it should not have any impact on any of the applications running on ethereum as long as we make the transition smoothly uh, in terms of security so there should not be it's not going to open up it up for any hacks or any kind of uh, uh, bad actors to come in uh, i mean there's one way to do it there is one way a bad actor can come in which is right at the time of uh, transition, but that has been mitigated now by sort of uh, like earlier. If you remember, we used to uh, they used to announce that okay, on this date at this block height, it's going to uh, this uh, protocol will be new protocol EIP will go into effect. Well, they've changed it to TTD, so it's kind of harder to uh, determine that. So we can tell kind of ballpark when it's going to be, uh, and that's the that's the only place where there is a there was a slight security risk. I just thought that obviously in a proof of stake system the, the security came from uh not have as in the uh, asset price being high and the uh, amount of supply that you can obviously buy to to gain majority in the system uh being locked as in not actually being on the market i don't know if that, that mean that may not be the case here. i don't know yeah, yeah okay i see what you mean yeah so oh well so in this case too yeah, yeah so actually there's a lot of mechanisms in moving to proof of stake that prevent such bad actors so in proof of work as you know, you can do a 51% attack, right? Where uh, you just basically, somebody owns 51% of the hash power, uh, they can corrupt the network. Yeah, uh, yeah in ETH, in, in staking, it's a completely different situation. Uh, uh, basically, in, in staking, whenever a validator node, if they give a corrupted, um, uh, what you may call it, corrupted uh, uh, transaction, uh, they essentially get slashed. So they're basically penalized. Uh, they lose their existing ETH and they are kicked out of the network. Uh, and then uh, since it's individual validators that are doing that, it's not that you can just actually bunch up a whole bunch of validators together and then make them act in unison. And even to do that, uh, that would mean that you would actually need to own uh, basically like literally more than half of the ETH out there, uh, which I don't think is feasible at that point of at this point of time by a single actor. Obviously, even trying to, to acquire that amount of of ETH yeah, would uh, sort of like, notice, right? yeah, people are going to notice as soon as that starts happening. Yeah, yeah, and then via governance, you can sort of like uh, yeah. mitigate it, I guess. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah, no worries. Okay, so if there's no more questions, I would love to hop onto my next call. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for your time. Uh, please reach out to me. I really enjoy discussing uh, crypto economics with everyone. And if there's more interest uh, in doing such more talks or writing an article or doing something about this, uh, let's have a discussion on this on the channel, on the right channel. I think Vinny can or Lovis, whoever, one of you guys can guide us uh, in taking it, uh, going to the next steps here. I uh, would like to thank you so much for this uh, wonderful presentation. It's a really um, interesting topic and having this opportunity to talk in really into the detail about this merge. It's a really good opportunity and a really nice event for our community. So, Lovis, 
Do you want to speak some words um, to the community? Yeah. Um, thank you again uh, so much. It was really, really cool. I definitely learned something. I thought I already knew it all, but definitely did not. <laughs> um, and yeah, any of you guys um, that are here that aren't already involved in becoming a contributor to this DAO, I just want to invite you to join one of our Thursday calls where we, um, the, you know, in the in the events, you can see they're called the cohort, weekly cohort calls. So if you're interested in figuring out how to become a contributor in this DAO, um, feel free to join us on a Thursday and um, we'll go through the process. And yeah, looking forward to seeing you guys there. Thank you so much.